Thank you very much for joining us today. Are you happy to introduce yourself for our audience? Yeah, sure. So my name is Nikki Stamp. I'm a consultant cardiothoracic surgeon in Australia. Um, and uh, I am, uh, have an interest in uh, adult cardiac surgery predominantly, where I do um, coronary surgery, I do aortic surgery, um, and a background in heart failure and transplant. Uh, and I also have a big sort of extracurricular activity schedule. Um, I've written two books. Um, the first one is called Can You Die of a Broken Heart? And that was released, I think, in 2018. And the second one just came out recently and is called Pretty Unhealthy, um, or, which is basically looking at why we're so obsessed with looking a particular way and um, it comes at the, the detriment to our health. Great, thank you very much. Are you happy to tell me a little bit about how you chose cardiothoracic surgery, sort of the pathway there, and your, your interest in adult cardiac surgery, and also how this sort of um, lead you in a way to your extracurricular, so your interest in writing books and on the topics that you choose to write book, particularly um, the latest one that you've released? Yeah, sure. So I um, had a very a bit of a convoluted pathway into medicine, into surgery. I actually used to want to be a surgeon when I was a kid. Uh, and there was a very well-known surgeon here in Australia by the name of um, Victor Chang. And Victor was a transplant surgeon in Sydney. Unfortunately, um, he died quite young, actually. But he was he was always in the news because he was leading leading the transplant unit in Sydney um, and he was working on a durable mechanical heart. And I used to say, when I grow up, I want to be a heart surgeon, finish, finish the work of Victor Chang. And very strangely, I ended up um, back working at the hospital he used to work at as a, as a transplant registrar. So it was a bit of a strange, poetic uh, thing, but I did get quite sidetracked along the way because... Um, that's what teenagers do. Um, when I, I sort of um, realised at the end of school that, it, well, actually it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was actually after I finished school that I really wanted to, to pursue medicine. Um, I started studying science first and then I got into medicine. Um, and from that point, I was always going to be a surgeon because I really, really love uh, I, I love anatomy. I love the fact that um, with surgery, the patient has a problem and then they have an operation and it's not there anymore. I, I kind of like the immediacy of what you could achieve. Um, and um, I just, I was just always just fascinated by, by the field. But I, I used to want to be, when I was a medical student and a junior doctor, I was going to be an orthopedic surgeon. Um, and then I got given a rotation in cardiothoracic as a sort of trade-off. Um, for my term in orthopedics and um, I basically never left. Um, I, I love the surgery. It's, it's challenging and interesting and fascinating and you work really closely with a team um, that, you know, we all have to work together. There's cardiologists and our nursing staff, theatre staff, um, anaesthetists, perfusionists. So it's a really amazing environment. I think it's quite unique in, in that regard. Um, so once I did my I did my training um, and I actually was thinking of pursuing a career in paediatric cardiac surgery. So I did some time as a fellow in paediatrics. So I did a, I did a um, I did a fellowship in paediatrics, um, but it was just too emotionally draining for me. Um, you know, it's a really it's a really difficult time to 
to experience kids that are so sick. Um, that being said, I loved it. I loved the surgery, but I, I actually went back to adult um, adult surgery after that. And I really like um, I really like coronary surgery because it complements my interest in sort of preventative medicine. Um, and uh, I also really enjoy the challenge of aortic surgery and and transplant surgery. You know, it's fantastic. And same thing, you get to work in an amazing team. But then I suppose the, the other side, the other side of my career has been a bit strange. Um, I, I can't quite remember how I sort of started, well, why I started really building a, a bit of a media career. Um, so I, um, I started writing, um, which turned into blogging, which turned into being a contributor for Huffington Post, which turned into um, uh, my first book, um, which which then grew, um, I posted um, a number of episodes of science shows here in Australia. So um, it's called Catalyst, which is a bit like BBC Horizon. Um, so I've hosted two of those, um, another show called Operation Live and I was regularly appear in, in TV. And, and I think that one of, the, one of the important things for me about that is that I get to put out the message about heart health and, you know, trying to, to speak to health as well more broadly um, and how we can all improve our, our health and wellbeing. Um, and particularly with, with the way of the world at the moment, there's a lot of information out there that is very confusing. Sometimes it's inaccurate. Um, and so I, I often spend time, uh, I suppose, um, breaking down some of the headlines and some of the things that you might read so that people can get a better idea of what, what's real and what's not, what they should do and shouldn't do. Um, and the other, the other really important side of it for me is that people then see me visibly um, as a female surgeon. Because like the UK, we have, we have we're very similar <laughs> in a lot of ways. Um, so um, uh, we have we only have uh, twelve percent of all consultant surgeons are female. Um, again, really comparable between Australia and the UK. Um, and in cardiothoracic surgery, I think that number is six percent here, and maybe four or five percent in the UK. So really comparable. Um, so it's it's very important for me to to be in that visible space, both as a as a health communicator. Um, as a science communicator, but also um, also as as a role model. Um, so it's a bit of a strange career, I suppose. Um, no, <laughs> not quite normal, but I really like it. I really enjoy what I do. Yeah, but it does it, it does make sense uh, the journey. And you were talking a bit about being passionate about preventive um, medicine. So mm -hmm. for the people out there and especially the women out there because I saw there were there's a bit of research going on on the differences in cardiovascular health um, and outcome based on sex and, and gender mm -hmm. so um, mm -hmm. what would you tell let's say the woman listening to us right now give her maybe five top tips um, to make sure that her heart, her heart is strong and that she's got she, she's got or at least she's aware of how she can have a better um yeah better cardiovascular health yeah sure so um women's heart disease well heart disease in women is the leading cause of death in most western countries um and a lot of women don't know that the research done here in australia shows that only 
two or three out of 10 women knew, thought that heart disease was something they had to be personally concerned with. And uh, you are two to three times more likely to die of heart disease and breast cancer. And certainly when I was, when I was at medical school, this, this really wasn't taught and partly because it wasn't known. It's probably only in the last decade that we've seen um, a bit of an explosion in research that is looking at the, the sex and gender differences in a lot of diseases. But heart disease is particularly concerning because women present with different symptoms. Women are, are less likely to get evidence-based care. They are referred later for transplants. Um, they have a whole host of different risk factors to what men have, such as things that happen in pregnancy, like preeclampsia. Um, and, and at the end of the day, there's, there is a different biology between men and women, but there's also a lot of social uh, aspect to this, um, that women are less likely to, to be referred for various treatments or whatnot because, because of these social constructs around gender that we have in our society. So I think, you know, if I'm talking about things that people people should absolutely be aware of, I'd say, first of all, you know, women need to know that heart disease is something that they need to be concerned about. And as healthcare practitioners, you need to be concerned about the hearts of your patients. Um, keep in mind that women can present with different symptoms. So rather than having that very typical pain in the middle of the chest, they can have funny little niggles and discomfort or pain in the arm or the jaw or the back tiredness, lethargy, shortness of breath. So it tends to be a little bit more frequently seen uh, in women. Um, we, also, um, we also know that women who, as I mentioned just now, that women who have um, problems in pregnancy, such as diabetes in pregnancy or, or preeclampsia, their risk for heart disease or any cardiovascular disease, including stroke, is, is higher for the rest of their life. So they um, should be followed up over the longer term, looking for, for early signs of these problems so that we can, we can treat them early. Uh, women respond really well to preventative care, but it tends to be underutilised. So uh, not enough women exercise around the world, and that's particularly problematic you know, when we look at different socioeconomic um, categories. So the more disadvantaged you are, the less likely you are to exercise. Um, and, and, and this comes down to, I think, a real social thing that we have to try and improve um, the ability for all women to engage in preventative activity. But it doesn't matter what you do, any, any exercise or any you know, positive improvements in your health, whether that be quitting smoking or improving your diet or going for a walk, anything you do, even if it's small, even if it's not the magic 30 minutes a day, is absolutely worthwhile doing because we do see great improvement in, in your health in that regard. Thank you so much. And to talk a little bit more on um, the differences, not only based on sex and gender, but also within that, based on social economical uh, background, to think also about women's, women's heart. And um, what would you say is um, sort of some of the difficulties that women might have when it comes to accessing accessing appointment with maybe cardiologists or like when we're talking about referrals what do you mm. think is the issue there so i think there's a number of issues um you know probably <laughs> probably a little bit beyond the scope of, of what we can talk about here in a short period of time because it is really complicated um so there's there's things you know if we look at um women's role in our society and our families women are still more likely to be carers 
um, whether it be for children or for, for other relatives, that can impact on their ability to, to sort of, you know, get to a doctor or, or just to, you know, get out and, and take, you know, take some time for their own health and wellbeing. Um, and um, that, that, that does, that certainly does play a role um, in, in, their broader health picture. I think we also see that um, women women have unfortunately been, I suppose, a little bit disadvantaged by by healthcare over a long time. I mean, the word hysteria, you know, comes from from the word for uterus because people used to think that um, when a when a woman was, um, you know, had a psychiatric illness or she was sad or she was, you know, behaving in a way they didn't think was appropriate they used to say that she had hysteria and it was thought to be due to the uterus wandering throughout the body which is obviously not true um but all, all these women were submitted to hysterectomies um to control their emotions so you know, it's complete rubbish thinking um but a lot of that sort of attitude has persisted so even you know with a, a an illness that specifically um, affects women so endometriosis you know most women wait on average seven years for diagnosis from the time they have symptoms to the time someone says actually you've got endometriosis um, so a lot of these sort of social social constructs really impact on the way a woman can engage um, in the healthcare system um, and once she's in there you know women women don't don't sort of get the same. I don't, maybe not always, I don't want to, you know, paint everyone with the same brush, but they don't always get the same attention and care. Um, so they're more likely to be given uh, anti-anxiety medications rather than painkillers when they present with pain um, it is a really good example. So again, all of these things are, are social constructs. I think from a biology perspective, I think we are very, we're very attuned to reproductive health when it comes to women, um, you know, most women, I think you'd, you'd be struggle to, struggling to find a woman who doesn't know that breast cancer is something that you know, matters or that you need to get a pap smear or, you know, if you're pregnant, you need to, you need to see your doctor or you, and your midwife and all those kinds of things. Those, those sorts of messages really dominate the, the discussion around women's health. Um, and they, they are very, they're very important, but Nonetheless, they they kind of they they sort of overarch everything, and we sometimes forget about some of the other aspects to women's health. So for me, obviously, I have a real strong interest in heart disease, but you know, we can talk about mental health, we can talk about domestic violence, we can talk about education from a health perspective. Um, there's a whole bunch of things that that just aren't aren't sort of uh, picked up on. Um, and of course, you know, as I mentioned, we we didn't have any teaching. We didn't even really have that much information that women and men experience a number of illnesses really differently in that they, they, their biological substrate for that illness is really, really different. Um, and so we just didn't have the knowledge and you know we're still filling in gaps in knowledge about what treatment, for example, works best for women or, or why heart attacks in women occur differently to men and, and all these kinds of things. So we've got a, a really, you know, really broad, complex problem. Um, and I think one of the really important things for me is actually getting more women in healthcare, in medical research, um, because we know that when you have, um, particularly medical research, if you have female researchers, they're much more likely to look at all this data from a sex and gender point of view. Um, they're much more likely to include female participants in trials. Um, and that, that's how we're going to get the data uh, that will help us take care of women um, better than we do at the moment. 
Thank you so much. And those three points that have really, really struck me because last week we did a podcast with two cancer survivors. One had breast breast mm. cancer and the other one had uh, stage four lung cancer. And what you're right. talking about the fact that women are much more aware of their reproductive sort of um, yeah, more women's health type of thing. So the first one had a breast cancer, but uh, the child felt the lump and she was like, oh, I need to see my GP. While the mm-hmm, second mm-hmm. one had the persistent cough, which went on and on and on. And by the time she went to the doctors, it was like less person who had the lump in one one or two weeks, she booked a meeting with her GP while the other one waited months. So yeah. That's very common. And I say, I say that, you know, if I look after lung cancer as well, um, you know, I say, I say that a lot, you know, and lung cancer kills far more women than, than breast cancer does. And I, I don't think this is to be critical of the discussion around reproductive health because it's really important. Um, and, you know, breast cancer awareness, for example, they have done the most phenomenal job of raising awareness, of raising funds, of you know, aiding research, of, of changing the conversation, but also changing the clinical treatment of breast cancer. You know, they they are outstanding, just phenomenally, phenomenally well done public health campaign. I think you know we actually need to learn. Um, we need to learn from them. I like there's a lot we can take away from looking at the success that breast cancer has had. Um, and translate that into into success um, in in other health arenas for men and women. Yes, de- definitely. So, yes, it's really really interesting to see um, how women access like, health in a non-reproductive space and and how um, yeah how quick. there are to sort of make sure that okay this is not really right and I need to see someone about this and talk to someone about it Um, so now I want to talk a little bit about um, the different roles so you are talking about being a a surgeon obviously um, being also someone who does research you publish in articles like in scientific articles and also for the lay the lay public you write books so mm-hmm. you're sort of the world rounder you're a clinician a scientist you're a, a leader definitely definitely an educator um and how how do you make sure that you sort of how did you find the equilibrium and the right amount of everything and how sort of the building blocks come together because you said you were on a journey before you started to write your books so you wrote for you you, you wrote for yourself and then you blog and then you became a contributor mm-hmm. but like how mm-hmm. how was the pathway to make sure that you could do all this little all these different things uh i think it's important to say that there is no equilibrium there you know balance is something that i think we're, we're told that we need to achieve but it's not actually as easily achievable um, and you know there are times when um, you know my life is way way out of balance um, and you know I think that comes down to sometimes prioritization so for example you know uh, when there's a clinical issue that obviously takes priority far and away over everything else right um, but you know there are other times when I'm you know I'm going away to make a TV show or my, my manuscript was due for my book you know I was very very focused on that um, so I think that there is that, that you know this idea of equilibrium or this idea of balance 
actually comes from, actually should maybe be better called prioritisation. Um, so looking at what's important at that time rather than having to juggle half a dozen different things all at once. Um, I think that, you know, more broadly speaking with, with women in medicine and women in surgery, I think a lot of us are, are taught that, um, you know, that you have to have balance, that the most important thing that you can do is to, to juggle, you know, all these different aspects of your life, whether it be, you know, being a doctor, being a mother, being a, a friend, you know, looking after yourself, having a, a second career, being a researcher, all these sorts of things. Um, the juggling act is is not, I don't think it's what most people experience. I think, you know, most people experience that, you know, having all of these different facets to their life, whatever they are, is difficult. Um, and that balance is not always achieved. Um, that trying to prioritise what's important at that time um, is, is, is actually a more worthwhile pursuit than trying to be perfectly in harmony with all of your different things. And when did you decide that you wanted to be involved in all those different plots? When did you decide that you didn't want to just be a clinician? Um, I don't know if it was a conscious decision. Um, I think I, I really just happened to, to go down that pathway because I really enjoy different different facets of my life you know I enjoy my research I enjoy um, my media I enjoy writing um, I enjoy being an, uh, you know a teacher and all these other things um, and so for me it wasn't it wasn't really a conscious decision other than to say that I, I really like all these things and so I'm going to to do them all um, in in some way shape or form and in some some you know magic <laughs> magic time when everything works nicely together um, I'm going to keep doing them because because I, I really enjoy them. You know, um, it wasn't it wasn't something that I necessarily set out to do to be, you know, having uh, having all of these different pursuits. It's just kind of fallen into into place that way. It's it's really interesting and actually very encouraging because here in the UK um, we have sort of a academic pathway that you can go on from when you're a junior doctor and then get a clinical mm -hmm. post etc. And um, I was talking to a few medical students and it's sort of a big commitment to make when you're not really sure so just knowing that you can decide to start out as a clinician and then you know fell in love with research and maybe do it on your own time and not necessarily pick like the, that lane and tell yourself I'm going to do this this way it's it's really nice to hear that you can just uh, make it happen as you go as your interests develop or, or not um, yeah, I, I think that's really good advice um, because you, you, you don't always know what you're going to, to want to do and you certainly don't know what opportunities are going to present themselves. So I think having an open mind about all aspects of your life and your career um, is, is a really healthy approach. And another question I want to ask you about, uh, you're, you're saying that you, obviously you think we should call it more prioritization than balance and equilibrium. And it, it's really interesting because it reminded me of a talk I was saying of Michelle Obama was saying that basically balance was not a thing and people were lying to me. Yeah. And um, he said, we can't have it all because then it means that someone else has nothing. And I want to know <laughs> how and how do you say no? 
because I am a graduate student. That's my first year of medical school. And I, from reading all the blogs and all the people who are in medicine, I was like, okay, so instead of just saying yes to everything, I'm going to make a conscious decision to start to say mm -hmm. no and really like focus on where I say yes to. In your case, you mm -hmm. must have so many opportunities coming your way. So how do you say no? And how do you say, okay, no, this, I cannot, I, I cannot add this on top of things. I think you just have to say no. I think when you're starting out, like when you're, when you're um, maybe, you know, whether it be um, clinically or otherwise, I think sometimes you have to say yes um, a bit more because otherwise, you know, you, you might, you know, you might lose an opportunity that um, is important or you might lose an opportunity that would be, um, would be interesting or, um, you know, broaden your horizon, for example. Um, but um, I think that, um, I think that saying no is a really important way to maintain, um, you know, something that looks like balance. Because I agree with Michelle Obama, balance is just, it's, it's, it's not real um, <laughs> for most people, you know, people who are balancing things that tend to be, um, you know, I would say prioritising or getting help, one of those things. Not, no, nobody is, is a superwoman, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, I think saying no is a really important way of maintaining balance. And I, I feel really, really guilty still saying no. And I'll, I'll give you an example. I, um, I gave a talk, um, I gave a talk, I think it was at, um, it was at my hospital, um, and then someone in the audience said, can you please give this talk again? It was really interesting to our department on this day. Um, and it wasn't a good day for me. Um, it was uh, a Thursday. So I know that because Thursdays are my busiest day. And I thought, I was thinking, actually, no, I really don't want to give this talk. It's going to make me late for this. And I have to get here early. Um, and, I, you know, I'll push my theatre start time back a little bit. And um, all these kinds of things. And I was thinking, no, 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 no. I don't want to do it. But I said, yes which was silly, you know, my, <laughs> my own fault. Um, and then when the day rolled around, as expected, I was busy, I was run off my feet. Um, and what I found is that I was, I was really resenting this person who asked me, who said, like, I felt like I'd been bullied into it, I'd been pushed into it, and I was really cross with them. And then I turned up to give the talk and everyone was late, which made me later, so I was even angrier um, by this stage. And really all of that could have been helped by me saying, Actually, I'm really sorry, I can't do that, or it's not a good day for me, you know, set up some boundaries. And I think that that, that story for me really encapsulates why it's important to say no, because if you, if you run with everything, I think, you know, you, you overcomplicate your life, you'll be resentful either at other people or yourself. Um, and, and you might end up doing a not so good job. And I, I don't think I did a particularly good job with that presentation that day because I was cross and rushed. Um, so I think that saying no is, is a really important tool that we all need to, to get. Um, and, and I think sometimes you're going to feel guilty about it, but you know, it's, it's completely fine to turn down opportunities. Thank you so much. So on International Women's Day, ladies please know that it's okay to have some boundaries sometimes <laughs> and say no to some things um, exactly so now i would like to talk a little bit about mentorship and sponsorship so first i want to talk about sponsorship with you because as you are saying there are very few women in cardiothoracic surgery in australia and i imagine that when you got when you started there were even less women so mm. how or 
like how or if you think at all that sponsorship has had an impact on your trajectory? So I think I was really lucky that I had some really fantastic people who supported me and taught me. Um, through, and, and not all of these people are cardiac surgeons either. Um, I, I really had people who, who looked at me and believed in me and put me forth for, for opportunities and research and all these things that you sort of need when you're just starting out to, to improve your CV and, and to get onto training. Um, so I was, I was very fortunate. And then likewise with my mentors, I've had many different mentors and some of them I wouldn't count as my mentors anymore because that relationship has evolved and changed or, you know, sometimes, it, you know, those, those relationships, like any in life, they kind of, you know, fizzle out and disappear. Um, but I've had a really broad variety of people who, who like I say, have, have my back. And I think it's really important to, to differentiate between mentorship and, and, and I suppose sponsorship, you know, mentorship is someone who's going to be there to advise you. And that's really important. You need that advice. You need that counsel, particularly when you're facing difficult decisions or difficult times. Um, but what you, what I think women really lack and really need um, is that someone is going to say, say to them or for them, you know, I'm going to put you forward for this opportunity. Um, I'm going to make sure that your voice is heard. I'm going to, um, you know, suggest you for this, for this job or, or, you know, this presentation and all those kinds of things. Um, because without it, I think all the advice in the world and, and all the work on your behalf um, is not necessarily going to be able to overcome some of these difficulties that we see with, um, um, with, with women, that women have um, in, in the medical workforce. That's a very good point. And thank you so much for making that distinction because I think some people don't know about it. In terms of mm -hmm. being a sponsor, how early do you think we can start and how can we be a sponsor at every stage in our sort of medical journey for us or for uh, someone who is not in, in medicine? Yeah, sure. So I think that um, it's never too early to have someone to look up to. And I, I think that um, one of the things, though, that I see around, particularly around mentorship, is that everyone is so desperate to have a mentor. Um, and, you know, these, these relationships take a little bit of time and sometimes they're something that forms organically and sometimes they're, um, they're you know, as a result of a mentor, you know, program or service, whatever you want to call it. Um, so I think, though, that, you know, you can, you can form an organic relationship with someone who is going to, to give you advice. And I think that's, that's a really important way to get a mentor. Um, and I think the other thing to keep in mind is that when, when you're coming up through your training, you know, whether it be in medical school or, or whatever, um, even when you're junior, you can still mentor somebody. And sometimes the best advice we get is from the person who is directly in front of us um, because they've just been through it, they've just done it. Um, so I think that's another really important point. So it's never too early to be a mentor or to be a sponsor. Um, you know, it, it's, it, it becomes a real focus though. Um, and, you know, people will email you or call you and say, oh, can you be my mentor? And, you know, it feels a little bit like being asked out for a date. Um, and likewise, you know, when you find someone that you want to, to be your mentor, um, you know, it feels really awkward to say, look, will you mentor me? And, you know, we're so, we're so entrenched in having that relationship name 
that we don't realise that those people are mentoring us already. They're already giving us advice and, and opportunities and, you know, just because it doesn't have a name doesn't make it any less valuable. But I think, you know, for women in particular, um, the importance of mentoring and, and sponsorship and um, um, is very important um, and we really should be pursuing this as a way um, to, to overcome some of the challenges in our workplace. Wow, thank you. Thank you so much for this. It's, it's, yes, it's really nice to hear because as you're saying, it's a bit awkward to ask someone to be your, your mentor. So I think it sometimes feels it's feels so strange. Yes, it is. I think sometimes it makes sense to just let the, the relationship happen and, you know, being that two-way sort of straight where everyone is bringing to the table and just not necessarily I guess formalize it maybe um, absolutely absolutely you don't you don't have to you know you don't have to formalize it and you don't have to you know have like a rigid structure I mean sometimes you do I think it's important to have goals that you know what you're as you mentioned you're both going to get from that relationship because the mentor learns from the mentee as well um, but, you know, a, a mentor can be someone who you email or text or call every now and again and say, oh, you know, do you mind if I run this problem or this issue or this situation path? I'd really love to get your thoughts. Um, and that's, that's, that's actually mentoring just because, you know, um, it's a really, really useful way. And I think it allows you to, to get mentoring and get sponsorship or get opportunities and, and teaching and learning from many different people um, and many different, um, many different, um, you know, uh, approaches to, to life. And that's really, really vital. And so what happened when you don't have that, like you, you don't have that the mentorship in your, in the specialty that you chose, which is so male dominated and you feel like you can't really bring your full self to the table and you can't really ask the question. Like, how does it work? when? That's, yes. That's such a good question. Um, because you know, women do benefit, not sometimes, not all the time from having, uh, I, I say men as well. If you identify with someone, sometimes that, mentorship um, is, is very important because you have someone who has a shared experience, um, whether it be your career path or your personal life and how to get that, you know, in tune with your career. Um, I, I would say though, um, as I, I don't know if I, I mentioned this or not, but you know, I pretty much solely have had male mentors um, and male, um, you know, people, you know, colleagues really for pretty much my whole career. Um, and I think that, you know, while, yeah, it's, it's you know, preferable for some people to want to discuss things like having a family with a, a, a woman um, particularly if a, a woman who's who's had a family and and is, is able to have a family and and do her job um which lots of women do um it, it is it is sometimes for some people that's preferable but i wouldn't go and discount the value of the men in in that field um and you know sometimes it's about finding the right person to talk to but if you are if you really want to talk to say a um uh, a female who's in the similar specialty or similar role as what you're you're pursuing um this is where i think social media is really really nice um so on twitter for example you know there's a huge number of uh doctors on on twitter um and you know you can find someone who who has has had a similar pathway to what you're what you're trying to pursue, or you know look outside even just you know in a more conventional fashion, just look outside of your own hospital, um, your own your own area. 
you can, you know, if you were wanting to pursue cardiac surgery, for example, and, and you weren't to ask about the, the challenges that might face a woman in cardiac surgery, but there are none, you know, you might be able to find a female orthopedic surgeon or a female neurosurgeon or something, someone else who, who can, can fill, fulfill that role for you. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't give up on finding a mentor just because there's not one, one at, your, at your doorstep. Um, and, and, or even getting advice um, just because it's not available to you in your immediate surroundings. You know, there's plenty of other ways to, to broaden and enhance your, your mentoring experience. Thank you. So you really just have to be so, like to sort of look into how social media can make you, can put, bring you closer to people who might be on, on the journey that you, you want to engage on and contact them and you'll find someone. Yeah, I think it's one way. I don't, I'm not saying it's the only way. I think it is one way to engage with women, particularly um, in, in that area or that specialty um, that doesn't require you to be in the same room. And I think that that is a really unique unique thing that social media can can uh, can do for, for women in medicine and women in surgery. Definitely. Can I talk a little bit about leadership? So online, but also offline. I was reading mm -hmm. a paper, I think it was a blog post from a trainee uh, on the website. The website is called inhousesstaff.org. And she was talking about the change that she saw some female surgeon around her go through so basically the the paper was about how all these small little let's say microaggression to your leadership quality so you would make a decision mm -hmm. and you would be questioned so much more than your male colleague and then you'll be like mm -hmm. okay fine i'm just going to do it and then day by day she felt like women were went through that phase where they always had to be on the defensive well they always had to be this is this way and and it felt like one day she had that own experience and she went to one of her um, junior residents and she was like, oh my God, I feel like I'm going through the change just because she had such a horrible day where everyone was questioning her leadership and her decision every step in the way. So how, how has this been for you, being a leader online and offline and um, especially in cardiothoracic surgery? And look, you know, what I feel is in some ways irrelevant because, you know, what you're describing there, um, these microaggressions that women face in the workplace, are, you know, are real, they're, they're supported by data. Um, and, you know, there are things like, you know, um, uh, that female um, trainees um, will have received lower evaluations from nursing staff despite performing an equal job, um, that, um, that uh, at a cardiac arrest, um, Female doctors, you know, uh, tend to, I suppose, self-police their own language, so then they're not, not seen as um, overbearing or bolshy, all these, you know, bossy, these kinds of terms. Um, so that that is a real phenomenon and, you know, certainly something that I've experienced. I know that I've had um, clinical situations where I've, you know, and sometimes emergency situations where I've come into a room and I've said, Look, here's what here's what needs to be done, um, and you know sometimes I'm the only woman in a room full of you know many um, older middle-aged white men, um, and I'll come into that room and they all kind of dismiss what I have to say, um, and then you know sometimes a colleague, an older male colleague of mine, will come in and say, yeah, that's this is what we need to do, literally saying the exact same thing that I just said. 
but it's taken um, <laughs> it's taken much more easily when he says it. And it's incredibly frustrating. Um, and those, these things over time really, really wear you down. And I think that um, part of the way to, to solving that is that we, we need to be ourselves in our workplaces and we need to have workplaces that let us, that make it safe for us to, to be ourselves. Um, uh, so I, I suppose that's sort of the, the real world answer. I think leadership online is, is very, very different um, because I, I think we're seeing um, a bit of discussion around this at the moment about the role of health, pre um, health professionals from all walks um, online um, who, um, you know, what, what's appropriate, what's not, um, you know, what should we be doing, what shouldn't we, do, we be doing. Um, you know, I think it's really important that, that healthcare professionals are online because, you know, the vast majority of the population gets their health information from the internet and a huge chunk of them get it from social media. So if we're not on social media providing this information, what's left is a really big gap that can be filled by anyone who who basically has a social media account. And I think that's potentially quite dangerous. So for me, in an online space, showing leadership means, you know, distributing good quality health information, being a role model, um, you know, like I say, for me, um, social media being a role model is, is just being there and showing actually, yes, I'm, at, you know, I, I've done this, I've taken this path, this career path. So, you know, you should, you know, don't discount it. Um, you can do it if you want to as well. Um, and so I think those, those are leadership positions that we should be filling in, in the online space. I would say that, you know, like as I just touched on, there is a lot of discussion about what's appropriate and what's not. Um, you know, social media is a, really is a brave new world and it's a, a double-edged sword. Um, so while you can do some really fantastic work online, I think that, I think that we're still kind of working out what, what, is, what is good and what isn't so good in terms of our behaviour online. Um, and where they're, where they, these boundaries need to be to be drawn. Um, so um, you know, you know, how should you behave? You know, what language should you use? Um, you know, and there are obviously there are things that are completely you know off the table, such as compromising patient confidentiality, or you know, um, you know, you know, treating other treating people with you know with disrespect and, and you know showing you know behaviors that we just would not acceptable in our profession like you know um you know for example drug use has come up before um so those kinds of things i think we need to to be leaders on and i think medicine has been traditionally not that great at self-policing behaviors like that um you know we we tend to you know leave it until the very last minute before we say actually something's not good and i think bullying in medicine is a really good example of that um it's not until it kind of gets widely publicised that we do something about it. Um, and, and so I think that, that the upside of that though is that the, the benefits to being online and the importance for us to be online, to be healthcare communicators and health leaders um, is, is really vital. And, and you know, I'm, I'm fortunate to, to be, you know, to have that position and, you know, it's something that I, I definitely don't take lightly. Thank you so much. And it's really interesting, the whole discussion that 
the medical community is having on actually what's appropriate and what's in not really appropriate in the u.s mm -hmm. they have a lot of medical students who have very like a huge amount of followers and it's sort of a real thing medical school instagram etc mm. etc et we don't really have that yet uh, in the uk and france no likewise yeah, yeah. At all. and so as as a student sometimes i always feel like oh my god i would i, I haven't done a public page because i'm just really scared and there is no guidelines there is nothing so like yeah, yeah. you truly don't and know i, I don't think you, i don't think that you have to like you, you know there's no um rule that says you have to be there it isn't for everyone and you know and i think you know there are other things you know your, your own privacy i think is really important so i don't think you have to do that um you know and then you're looking at different platforms like you know there's been a lot of talk about TikTok. Um, and then again, particularly in the US, um, that doctors have been on TikTok and they're doing like this amazing job at, at educating people. Like, you know, there's some um, really phenomenal doctors out there who are reaching a, a really young audience with sexual health and gynecological health and violence and vaccinations and all these really, really important things. Um, but then there have been some really disappointing examples of people who who are not, not bad people. They may have just had a sort of a momentary lapse in their judgment. Um, and, you know, we've seen this with nurses as well, that they have um, posted a video on TikTok, which is, you know, really not a good look. Um, and, you know, I think that if you're going to be um, publicly online and you're going to be publicly online as a healthcare professional, um, there are guidelines that are published by most um, most uh, governing organisations, whether it be the GMC or the colleges, or even your your hospital, your trust, um, that they um, they there are guidelines around social media. I don't think they encompass the full range of things that happen on social media, partly because it changes so quickly. Um, <laughs> uh, but I think they are a really good place to to start if you're going to to venture into to social media as a healthcare professional. That's, that's great to hear. So I'm going to go for uh, one last question. On the occasion of International Women's Day, what does it mean for you to be a woman in cardiothoracic surgery? Oh, that's always a tough question um, because it's always lots, it's lots of things. <laughs> um, but I think, um, I think if I had to put two, I'm going to just limit it to two, two important things about my role. Um, the first would be that I, I feel that it's really important for me to be here for my patients um, because I think that every person deserves a medical workforce that represents them, that looks like them. Um, and, you know, I think that that has benefits because they, you know, they, you might, they might feel more comfortable with you. Um, but for me, in, in my sort of area of, of interest, I think that that me being here means that I am interested in the heart health of women and that's going to translate into my clinical practice, into how I teach people um, and into my research. And I think the other side of the coin, I guess that kind of related, um, is to, to be there, uh, be a role model. And, you know, there's that very classic saying, you can't be what you can't see. Um, and, you know, being, being visible um, as a female cardiac surgeon and pointing out that it is unusual um, is is really important to me because it might it might spur on someone to pursue something that that they may not have considered previously 
uh, and I think that's a really important role to play and I'm, I'm really grateful that that people you know want want to hear about that for me <laughs> I think it's, it's, it's pretty special thank you so much so to finish this podcast I would like to ask you three questions from the Proust questionnaire are you happy to do okay. it? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> so the first one is, what is your idea of perfect happiness? I don't think there is such a thing as perfect happiness. Um, <laughs> gosh, I'm being controversial. Um, I think that, um, I think that um, you know, you, you need to work out what's important to you and, and pursue that, and that will probably make you happy. But maybe pursuit of perfection is, is maybe something that will lead to less happiness. Sorry, okay. very controversial. No, okay. <laughs> so let's try another one on that topic, um, which would be when and where were you happiest? Would that work? Oh, I can tell you, the, yes. So the best day I've ever had was the day I passed my specials exam um, because it was uh, the culmination of, I don't know how long at that stage, maybe 15 years of work and study. <laughs> um, and uh, that, was, that, was, uh, that was absolutely amazing. So would that mean that it actually answered the following question? What do you consider your greatest achievement? So I think my greatest achievement is my patience. Um, you know, I, I, over Christmas, I got quite a few messages from people who I'd operated on or people who I'd, I'd operated on their family member saying thank you that, you know, for, for looking after their, themselves or their loved ones. Um, you know, because Christmas is obviously time sometimes when you reflect on these kinds of things. Um, and I think my greatest achievement is being able to make a positive change in people's lives. Thank you so much, Dr. Stump, for your generosity <laughs> for your time. It was amazing. It was my very great pleasure. Thank you.